Is God real? Are the stories in the Bible true? I need answers. Welcome to A Closer Look with the Shiloh Missionary Baptist Church. I'm Fred Jeff Smith, pastor of Shiloh, and I'm very happy that you chose to spend the next hour with us as we delve into the study of God's Word. We can't do what we don't know. Here at Shiloh, we want to spend time studying the Word so that we can rightly apply the Word to our daily living and make a difference in our community and in our world for Jesus Christ. Won't you join us now for a closer look into God? Please open your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 10. And we are looking at verses 17 through 27. 1 Samuel chapter 10, verses 17 through 27. We left off last time ending with verse 9 of chapter 10, where Samuel uh, tells Saul of the various things that are going to happen to confirm the fact that God has chosen him to become the king of Israel. Uh, in the interim verses, because we're starting with verse 17, and somebody's going to say, well, why didn't you just start with verse 10? And maybe I should have. But uh, uh, in the interim verses, uh, Saul goes home, and uh, when he goes home, he shares with his uncle, with his family member, uh, what had happened up to a point. Uh, just go ahead and look at verse 10. <laughs> I'm sorry, I should have started there. When Saul and his party got to Gibeah, there were the prophets right in front of them. Before he knew it, the Spirit of God came on Saul, and he was prophesying right along with them. When those who had previously known Saul saw him prophesying with the prophets, they were totally surprised. What's going on here? What's come over the son of Kish? How on earth did Saul get to be a prophet? One man spoke up and said, who started this? Where did these people ever come from? That's how the saying got started, Saul among the prophets, who would have guessed? When Saul was done prophesying, he returned home. His uncle asked him and his servant, so where have you two been all this time? Out looking for the donkeys. We looked and looked and couldn't find them. And then we found Samuel. So, said Saul's uncle. What did Samuel tell you? Saul said he told us not to worry. The donkeys had been found. But Saul didn't breathe a word to his uncle of what Samuel said about the king business. I find that interesting. Uh, uh, I also find it instructive that Saul was willing to talk about, I don't need to talk about the prophesying part because we ended talking about the prophesying part, so just, just, just go past that. And, and look at what happens in this uh, conversation between Saul and his uncle. Where have you been all this time? I've been out looking for the donkeys that I told you. Uh, you know, Daddy lost the donkeys. I'm looking for the donkeys. Uh, but while we were looking, we came across Samuel, the, the, the seer, the prophet. Well, what did Samuel tell you? Samuel told us that the donkeys are fine, that the donkeys are at home. And that's all he told him. He didn't tell him anything else. Said nothing about, y'all know what y'all would have done. Y'all shouldn't be looking at me like y'all. <laughs> if, if, if somebody, if, if you had had the experience with Samuel that Saul had with Samuel, and somebody asked you, what happened when you met Samuel? All you're going to talk about is the donkeys. He, 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 he told me that the donkeys that we were looking for were, were safe and sound. We ain't got to worry about them no more. And then he went, no, y'all would have said, child, let me tell you, sit down. <laughs> Get yourself something to drink because we're going to have a conversation now. <laughs> we would have told everything. Some of us would have told it to the nth detail. It was 2.45 in the afternoon when we came across him. The wind was blowing at a cross pace at two miles per hour. We, 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 would, have, we would have shared every possible detail of it. But Saul 
only talks about the donkeys. He says nothing about Samuel telling him that you're going to be Israel's first king. Why do you think that is? Apparently, Saul had to reconcile this information within his own spirit before he was willing to share it with anyone else. We're going to see that he still had problems with it as we move a little bit further on. He still had problems with it later on in this chapter. But I think it's significant that Saul is not so quick to embrace what God is calling him to. And I think it's a pragmatic and it's a practical lesson for all of us. We need to learn how to keep our mouths shut from time to time. Now, I'm telling y'all that. The notes say we need to learn how to operate in God's timing. But I, I'm not going to put it like that. When I'm, Y'all need to learn how to hush sometimes. And I'm really talking to the wrong generation of folk. I'm, I'm looking out at, at, at who's in here. I'm really talking to the wrong generation of folk. We have become so social media crazy that we put everything, every possible aspect of our business is on social media. What you ate for breakfast is on social media. Where you ate breakfast is on social media. What happened while you were eating breakfast is on social media. There are some people who put every single event of their lives from the time I get up early in the morning. And, and, and sometimes when I get up early in the morning, and yes, I, I do go on social media because I, I put a prayer and a scripture on social media every morning. Sometimes there are people on social media and they've been on there since three o'clock in the morning. They say, it's three o'clock in the morning, I'm awake, who else is up? They, 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 they have nothing else to do but share every moment of their lives on social media. So, so for, I'm not talking to y'all because y'all don't do that. I'm looking at all y'all going, that's not me, that's not me. That's me. So I'm talking to the ones who are watching me. Quit putting all your mess on Facebook and on Instagram and on Snapchat and whatever else there is out there that I don't know anything about. Every now and then, it would be good if we just kept some stuff to ourselves. I'm always telling y'all about my mama. One of the things my mama would always say is, don't let your right hand know what your left hand is doing. You ain't got to tell everything to everybody. It's a good thing to keep some stuff to yourself. Now, God has elevated Saul to this position, but Saul does not feel comfortable enough with what God has done to start sharing it with other folk, which says that somewhere in Saul's own person, Saul was, was still wrestling with the reality of what's going on, and he wanted to be clear about what God was doing in his life before he started sharing it with everybody else. So when his uncle comes to him and, and, and says, well, where you been? I haven't seen you in a couple of days. What you been doing? You ran across this fellow, Samuel. What did Samuel tell you? He, he, he told me that the donkeys got home safe. And sure enough, when I got home, the donkeys were safe. And that's all he talked about. I can imagine, although it's not written in the scripture, I can imagine the uncle was saying to Saul, what got into you? You doing all that dancing and, and prophesying. So because that happened at home. It says when Saul got home that the prophets came down out of the hills and they started dancing and they started prophesying. And before you knew it, Saul was dancing and prophesying with them. So I can imagine his uncle was saying, what got into you? Saul didn't talk about none of that. Saul only talked about the donkeys. We got to learn to keep some stuff to ourselves. Amen. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. All right. Verse, 11, verse 17, which is where I wanted to start. Verse 17. Samuel called the people to assemble before God at Mizpah. He addressed the children of Israel. This is God's personal message to you. That's number one. 
I, I got five things I want to tell you about this. Number one, this is God's personal message to you. I brought Israel up out of Egypt. I delivered you from Egyptian oppression. That's numbers two and three. Yes, from all the bullying governments that made your life miserable. And now you want nothing to do with your God. That's number four. The very God who has a history of getting you out of troubles of all sorts. And now you say, no, we want a king. Give us a king. Well, if that's what you want, that's what you'll get. That's number five. Present yourselves formally before God, ranked in tribes and families. Samuel assembles the people at Mizpah, which is the same place where in 1 Samuel chapter 7, he had gathered the people and they had repented and turned to God at the beginning of Samuel's ministry as judge. The people are optimistic, they are enthusiastic about what is about to happen. But before presenting Saul to the people, Samuel begins with a rebuke from God for the people. And I want you to note that the writer makes it clear that Samuel is speaking not for himself, but is speaking for God. This is the second time that Samuel has rebuked the people for asking for a king. The first time, Samuel took it personally. How dare y'all? I thought I was doing a pretty good job, and you trying to, to move me out. And God had to pull Samuel to the side and say, give them what they want, because it's not about you. It's really about me. And then God sends Samuel before the people, and the first warning that Samuel gives to the people was about the cost of a king. You remember that? If you really want a king, then it's going to cost you something. And he talks about how their children were going to be taken care of and how, or, or not taken care of, mistreated. He talks about manservants and maidservants. He talks about increases in taxes. He talks about farms and fields being taken from them. All of that goes along with the request for a king. And, and, and at the end of all of that, the people said, that's fine. We still want a king that we can see. Well, this second rebuke is a little different from the first. Five things I want you to see about this second rebuke. Number one, it is a personal message. This is God's personal message to you. The suggestion here is that there is a level of intimacy that God establishes in this message. This message is not for everybody. This message is for God's chosen people. What's the practical import of that for us? Sometimes we need to remember that God has a rhema word that is just for us. Scripture is, has been for generations, for, for centuries. But sometimes scripture that speaks one thing to everybody else speaks something different. To you. And often it has to do with what you're going through. Be still and know that I am God sounds great generally. But when you're going through hell and you're trying to figure out who to fight first and God speaks to your spirit and says, don't fight nobody. Be still and know that I am God. Well, that ain't a word just for everybody. That's a word specifically for you. Have you ever been tired? Have you ever felt like giving up? Have you ever felt like, I don't want to do this no more? They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. Now, that speaks to everybody. But if you're tired, it really speaks to you. You'll mount up on wings like eagles. You'll run and not be weary. You'll walk and not faint. God 
first approaches Israel by saying, this is a personal message. This is a message for you. This is a message for my chosen people. And if you are a disciple of Jesus Christ, you are God's chosen person. And God sometimes has a message that ain't for everybody else. It's just for you. Now, let, let, let me say this as I move on to number two. You can't get God's message that's just for you if you don't spend no time talking to the Lord. Some people miss God's message just for them because they don't spend no time talking to the Lord. You can miss God's message that's just for you if you ain't paying attention when God is talking. Have you ever had a conversation with somebody and you told them something and then they asked you about the very thing that you told them something about? When I leave Bible study today, I'm going to have lunch with uh, Reverend Tommy Gibson, and you come up to me two minutes later and say, where are you going when you leave Bible study today? <laughs> like, I ain't said nothing to you at all. I have found that there are people who hear but don't listen. I just told you where I was going. I wasn't I paying no attention to what you were saying. Unfortunately, that is not only true when we're talking to one another. Sometimes that's true when God is speaking to us. From time to time, people will come and say, well, how will I know that God is talking to me? Be still. Let God talk to you. Prayer is not just a one-way communication. It's not just you talking to God. After you've told God everything that you want to say, just sit there for a second. And allow the Lord to talk to you. It, 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 it's a personal message. First thing that, that Samuel says on behalf of God is that this is a message for you. This is a personal message for you. The second thing he says is that it's a word of remembrance. I brought Israel up out of Egypt. Do you, do you remember who I am? I'm the one who brought you out of oppression. I'm the one who have kept all of the bullying governments away from you that made your life miserable. Now, I know that some of y'all are people who don't like people telling you I told you so. I can't stand it when they come back and tell you I told you. God is an I told you so God. So, 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 so next time I tell you I told you so about something, just know I'm talking like God talks. Because God will tell you, I just, I'm the one. Remember who brought you up from where you are. And for all you folk who don't like nobody to tell you I told you so, all y'all tell somebody I told you so. If it ain't your child, it's your grandchild, or it's your friend. You know, I was with you when nobody else was with you. When you got drunk that night and you, you almost ran off the road, I was the one who pulled the, the, the wheel back and got you back on the road. If you can't say amen, say out. I'm the one who was there when everybody else forgot about you. I'm the one who, who, who looked after you when nobody else cared anything about you. Remember, this is God talking. God said, when you were in the deepest pits of Egypt, I'm the one who brought you out. And I didn't just bring you out. I protected you from Egypt while they chased after you. All the while, while you were wandering around in circles. Your fault, by the way, that you were wandering around in circles. Because I brought you to the land, and you said you didn't want to go in. I'm the one who kept you while you were wandering around in circles for 38 years. Years And then when you crossed over, I'm the one who kept you while you moved all those other folk out. And by the way, you didn't finish what you were supposed to finish because you left some folk in there. And then I'm the one who kept you when the folk that you left in there that you were supposed to take out tried to overwhelm you and overtake you. I've been the one who's been there the entire time. God has a way of reminding us. Wasn't because you so smart. It wasn't because of your wealth. It wasn't because of your academic prowess. It wasn't because 
you pretty or you're handsome is because of me. I took care of you. It's a word of remembrance. Third thing I want you to see is it's a word of provision. I delivered you from every enemy. I delivered you. One of the things that, that, that it's important for us to remember is that God is not just present, but God is active. It would be a terrible thing if God was present but couldn't do anything. The people of Malachi's time, the, 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 the children of Israel, the, the Judeans, one of the things that they accused God of was being impotent. The only thing y'all read in Malachi was bring all the tithes to the soil, and that's why y'all don't read Malachi. But, 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 but if you read Malachi, one of the accusations that are laid, that, that, that's laid against God is that God is impotent. God does not act. God is asleep. God, God is up in heaven, sound asleep not paying attention to what's going on here. And if he is paying attention, he must not care because he ain't doing what we want him to do. It would be a terrible thing if God was present but could not act. But here God reminds the children of Israel, not only am I here, but I'm active. And in your life, God has reminded you, I'm sure, that not only is he present, but he's active. Build a hedge around you to protect you from your enemies. You know God is doing stuff for you. You ain't even got sense enough to know that he's doing for you. Do you, do you know that when you are asleep, God is watching over you? You sleep. And, and, and yet your body goes, <sighs> now your conscience ain't doing that because you out like a light, but your body is still acting. That's God. When you wake up in the morning and you recognize where you are, because somebody woke up this morning and asked, where am I? When you wake up in the morning and recognize where you are, that's God. When you get ready to swing your legs out from the bed, and you still can swing your legs out from the bed, that's God. God's doing stuff for you that you don't give him no credit for at all. You, 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 you got a $2,000 refrigerator sitting in your kitchen and you open it up and you say, ain't nothing in here. Do you remember when all you had was an ice box? <laughs> and, somebody, and somebody's listening to me and saying, well, what's an ice box? An ice box is literally what I said it was. It's a box that you put a big thing of ice in. And that kept your food until the guy could come back around the next time and put another block of ice in there. We ain't got nothing to eat. You, you, you got a kitchen that's full of stuff that you went to the store and bought. Because some of y'all ain't, ain't just got the $2,000 refrigerator in your kitchen. Y'all got these freezers in, in, in the back that's loaded to the brim with stuff. We ain't got nothing to eat. Do you know how good God has been to you? Do you know how God has taken care of you. It, 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 it's good to know that he's there, but it's better to know that he's not just there. He's active. Health in your body, sanity in your mind, money in your pocket. He's active. Then the fourth thing I want you to see is that it's a word of disappointment. God says, and now you say, no, we want a king. Give us a king. Now you want nothing to do. Every parent I know has said to their child, after all I've done for you, 
This is how you're going to treat me. That's the way God is speaking to the children of Israel. After all that I have done for you, now you don't want to have nothing to do with me. Did you know that you have the capacity to hurt God? I know we think of God as being omnipotent, all-powerful, but God is also an intimate friend. Yes, he's all-powerful, and yet because of the intimacy that he wants with us, we have the capacity to hurt God. Intimacy means that there's vulnerability. You can't be intimate and not be vulnerable. And vulnerability means that you have the capacity to hurt and to be hurt. People say, I don't want to be hurt no more. Then what you're saying is, I don't want to have close relationships with anybody. Because if you're going to have a close relationship with anybody, and it lasts more than 30 seconds, somebody's going to hurt you. Or you're going to hurt somebody. God, God, God says to his chosen people, you have hurt my feelings. You have disappointed me. I, I, I thought you were better than this. I told y'all last week, my dad only hit me one time in my life. But sometimes I wish he'd hit me instead of doing what he did. I'm so disappointed. In I, I couldn't stand that. <laughs> I'm so disappointed. Well, that's what God is saying. I'm so disappointed in you. Don't just look at it from a third-person perspective. He's disappointed in them. God's disappointed in you, too. God's disappointed in me, too. Since you got up this morning, you done done something that you know God didn't want you to do. Paul says, I find that there's a law at work, that when I would do good, evil is present on every hand. And I find that there, there are times when I know what I ought to do. And yet I don't do it. And I know that there are things that I should not do, but I go on and do them anyhow. Every time you do that, every time you say amen to Paul, what you're really doing is hurting God. You're disappointing God. With all that I have forgiven from you, you can't forgive so-and-so, you fill in the blank for who so-and-so is. Somebody's in here who's held a grudge for 30 years. With all that I've forgiven you for, with all the times you promised me I ain't going to do it no more, and then you went right back out and did it anyway, you can't forgive so-and-so. All the times that I have extended grace and mercy to you, you can't extend any grace or any mercy to anyone else. We have the capacity to hurt God. God says, you've hurt my feelings. And I think sometimes if we thought about it from that perspective, when we get ready to do our dirt, because, you know, some of us play in our dirt. It, it, it doesn't just come up. You didn't just get caught up in the moment. Amen. It's funny how y'all get quiet when I say this. Uh, you know you plotting. Maybe if we thought about what it was we were doing from the perspective of we are hurting God. We are disappointing God. We are shaming God. Remember what your last name is. When, when, when you go out there in the street... You remember what your last name is? Well, your last name is not Smith. Your last name is not Jones. Your last name is, is not Wilson or Johnson. Your last name is Christian. Be careful how you besmirch the name Christian. Who's that unloving person over there? Christian. 
Who's that unforgiving person over there? Christian. Who's that foul-mouthed person over there just cussing up a Christian? Who's that cheap, selfish so-and-so who won't help nobody, no time, under any circumstances? Christian. Who's that sometimey person who only comes to church once a month? Christian. I could go on and on and on. Remember what your last name is. And remember who you're hurting when you do what you do. Then there's a fifth thing in this word, and that is it's a word of permissiveness. Despite all that God says previous to this, I watched out for you. I took care of you. I provided for you. You have rejected me, and it hurts my feelings that you have done this. The last thing he says is, if you want a king, I'm going to give you what you asked for. Despite God's disappointment, despite his hurt, he will permit Israel to have what they asked for. But he will make the choice. We should be mindful that the fact that God permits something doesn't mean that God approves of what he permits. Some of us think that because God lets us have something that God wants us to have it. It's not always the case. There, there are three wills of God. There is an original will, there is a permissive will, there is an ultimate will. The original will of God is that God and his chief creation will have permanent eternal fellowship with one another, that we will live to glorify him in all of our actions and all of our thoughts and all of our conversation. That's his original will for us. We were made to glorify our creator. But permissively, God allows us to make our own choices. Freedom of choice is what makes us in the image of God. God is sovereign. And if we are made in his image, we too are sovereign. We too have the capacity to make a choice. Now, the difference between us and God is God don't ever make no bad choices. But the same can't be said for you and me. I won't speak for y'all. I'll speak for me. I make some terrible choices. I, I, I do things that are displeasing to God. And God allows me the freedom to do it. And, and, and it's a strange thing. When you do something that you know you ain't got no business doing and you get away with it, you feel like you can do it again. And when you get away with it the second time, you feel like you can do it again. God will permit us to do things, but his permission does not mean that he is pleased. God made it clear to Samuel, they're, 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 they're choosing to get a king is not a rejection of you. It's a rejection of me. Now, God can't be pleased with his chosen people rejecting him, but he allows it to happen because choice ain't choice unless you got a choice. That's profound. Boy, you just said something. <laughs> choice ain't choice unless you got a choice. You go to Baskin Robbins, Baskin Robbins, big thing. You, they don't say it too much anymore. 32 flavors, which means you got a whole lot of choice. But if you go into Baskin Robbins and you say, what's your flavors today? And they say, well, we got vanilla, and 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 we got vanilla. 
Which one do you want? <laughs> choice ain't choice. Unless you got a choice. God made us sovereign. And part of that sovereignty is the freedom to choose. And God wouldn't be God if he restricted us in the choices that we could make. He warns us about the choices that we make. But after the warning, he leaves that up to you. And stop blaming the devil for everything. Tell you another one to stop blaming. Stop blaming the enemy for everything. I hear all these Pentecostal folks about the enemy. The enemy did. You, you want to know who your first enemy is? You. You are your first enemy. So, so, so when you call in the enemy the enemy, you just might as well go ahead and put your name in there. Because Fred's first enemy is Fred. So, the fact that God allows them to choose does not mean that God approves of the fact that they want to engage in this choice. But because God's character and God's integrity is such that it is, he will never renege on what he has established for his people. He will never go back. So in spite of their sinful demand, God is going to graciously give them the king that they are demanding. How does he do it? After Samuel got all the tribes of Israel lined up, the Benjamin tribe was picked. Then he lined up the Benjamin tribe in family groups, and the family of Matri was picked. The family of Matri took its place in the lineup, and the name Saul, son of Kish, was picked. But when they went looking for him, he was nowhere to be found. Samuel instructs the Israelites to present themselves before the Lord by tribe. And once he has them lined up by tribe, he has them cast lots in order to select who the king will be. Now, somebody's asking the question, why would he do all of that instead of just tell them who the king is going to be? That's a good question, and I'm going to tell you why. The purpose of this process is for the benefit of the people so that they will be convinced that Saul is God's choice. The belief at that time was that if you cast lots in God's name, that God would control how the lots were cast. And so they went through the process of casting lots because it was a part of their belief system. Imagine what would have happened if Samuel had stood up and said, God told me to tell you that Saul is the king. Somebody would have said, well, God needs to tell me that because Saul ain't my choice. Y'all know how we act, right? Imagine that, that, that Samuel said, well, we're going to put on an election and we're going to choose candidates and then you're going to vote. Sounds like something we do around here. Well, you know what happens at the end of an election, right? The, 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 the folk who won are happy and the folk who lost are miserable. And they go around muttering and say, they cheated. That ain't right. Blah, 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 whatever it is. So Samuel doesn't name the king on God's behalf. There's no election that is held. God decides that he is going to submit himself to the tradition of the people and through the tradition of the people, bring about the choice that he has made. Now, remind you, God has already told Samuel that Saul is going to be king. And Samuel has already told Saul that God told me, you're going to be king. But God allows them to go through the process to make them happy, 
that they would go through the process that they thought would bring about the choice that was from God. Here's the point. God is not bound by human systems, human practices, human beliefs, human traditions to accomplish his will. He's not bound by that. But sometimes God will use these things to hasten our acceptance of his decisions. Sometimes God says, rather than put y'all out, I'll just do it your way and make sure that it turns out the way I want it to turn out anyway. By the way, did you know that everything that turns out turns out God's way? Did you know that, 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 that nothing that turns out turns out any way other than, a, than as God wanted it to turn out? Because there's never a time when God ain't God. So God allows them to go through this process in order to pick the person that he has already selected. That's pretty good. So what happens next? When they went looking for him, he was nowhere to be found. Samuel went back to God. Is he anywhere around? God said, yeah, he's right over there, hidden in that pile of baggage. They ran and got him. He took his place before everyone, standing tall, head and shoulders above them. Samuel then addressed the people, take a good look at whom God has chosen, the best. No one like him in the whole country. Then a great shout went up from the people, long live the king. Question, why was Saul hiding in the baggage? Well, some would say he was hiding in humility. Some were saying he, would say he was hiding in fear. I don't know why he was hiding. But I can tell you this much. It does not suggest that he was arrogant or that he was prideful. He, he's not standing there saying, y'all go ahead and cast him lots. God done already told me I'm the one. No, he's hiding in the baggage, which, which, which is an indication that he is still trying to wrap his mind and his spirit around what God has done. He has separated himself, put himself in a place where no one can see him, where no one knows where he is, because he does not want to show any hint of arrogance or pride or hubris. Here's the practical point for us. When God elevates us, it suggests no reason for us to boast on our part. If God elevates us, we should divorce ourselves from any pride at all. If God elevates us, it means that in spite of all of our faults, God says, I can use you. If God elevates us, you know what you ought to be saying the whole time? Who? Me? I know you ain't talking to me. God calls Moses out of a burning bush. Moses said, no, you ain't calling me. I, I, I know you're not talking to me. God will call to us. And when God calls to us, the only appropriate spirit for us to have is one of humility and an acknowledgement that God has looked beyond our many faults in order to put us in this place to serve him. And by the way, that's the, that's the second point about this. When God elevates us, it's elevation for the purposes of service not for the purposes 
of lording yourself over other people. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 20, the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to offer his life as a ransom for many. Well, if Jesus came to serve, how come you think you ain't got to serve nobody? Jesus gets up from the table on the night before he's crucified and he wraps a towel around himself and he grabs a basin of water and he goes around and washes the disciples' feet. And when he gets to Peter, he says, you ain't, you ain't washing my feet. You're too good for that. And Jesus says, if I can't wash your feet, you can have no part in my ministry. And Peter says, then wash everything I got. Some of us have a hubris problem. You can't help it. You, you, you're a victim to what everybody's told you. Everybody's told you, you're so smart, you're so talented, you're so pretty, you're so handsome. You, you, you're just so much better than everybody. You know, we, we all into this self-esteem thing, building up everybody's self-esteem. And I believe in, in having a strong self-esteem. But as I've told you before, self-esteem starts with God-esteem. If all you think about is you and God ain't no way in the picture, then, then, then you have an exaggerated opinion of yourself. Saul is hiding in the baggage and they go and get him and pull him out. And, 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 and once they pull him out, Samuel says, this is the one whom God has chosen. When God is ready to promote you, he will promote you. You don't need to flaunt yourself. All you need to do is push yourself forward and say, here am I, Lord. Send me. A transformation has to take place before that can happen. Isaiah says that before I saw the Lord, I thought I was something. But when I saw the Lord, I knew I wasn't nothing. But then the Lord touched me. And once the Lord touched me, then he could ask the question, whom shall we send? And who will go for us? And after he touched me, I could say, here am I. Send me. We have to go through a process. God has to break us down in order to build us back up and make us usable in his service. If you lift you up, calamity is going to follow. But if you humble yourself and let God lift you up, nothing but wonderful things are going to happen. Now, last thing, because I'm going to eat. Y'all heard me, right? I'm going to eat. So don't, don't ask me, where are you going after this? I'm going to eat. <laughs> Y'all heard me. All right. Samuel went on to instruct the people in the rules and regulations involved in a kingdom, wrote it all down in a book, and placed it before God. Then Samuel sent everyone home. Saul also went home to Gibeah, and with him, some of the true and brave men from God moved to join him. But the riffraff went off muttering, deliverer, don't make me laugh. They held him in contempt and refused to congratulate him. But Saul paid them no mind. That's what I want to end on. God's elevation of us suggests that we need not concern ourselves with the objections that follow. People are free to have their opinion. People are even free to act on the opinion that they have. But if God has chosen you, 
no weapon formed against you will prosper. If God has chosen, it does not matter what the opinions of the other folk are. You just keep your mind on what God has called you to do. Your concern should be, one, stay within the will of God. Two, seek his counsel always. Three, carry out his instruction, because it's a terrible thing to ask him what to do and then not do what he tells you to do. And four, stay submitted to his authority at all times. If you're looking for 100%, in your favor, you're going to always be disappointed. If you're looking for, for, for folk to just always love you and agree with everything that you do, you're going to always be disappointed. What you need to be sure of is that you are on the same page with God. If God is for us, who can be against us. Well, the, the text tells you who? Riffraff. Riffraff. Everybody in here got some riffraff. Everybody in here has a contingent of folk who live just to cause you trouble. Don't cede any power over to them. They can't do nothing to you because you're in God's hands. Saul didn't even answer him. He paid no attention. People going to say what they're going to say. Just act like you ain't here and keep on going. And make sure that you listen to God. 